What a blessing to sing those words out that it was finished upon the cross. That work that needed to be done to redeem us from our sin is not something that we come here this morning to finish up for the Lord. Uh, we will offer Him praise today. We will give our offerings in support of the mission. We will pray to Him. We will sing worship songs to Him. But none of these things are we doing to finish up the work of salvation. These are the outflow of the finished work that Christ has done on our behalf. The Son of God did what none of us could do for ourselves. And so we rejoice today, thankful that it is completed, it is accomplished. And even a little bit later, as we experience the beauty of baptism, which is one of two special sacraments that God has given to His church as testimonies to His great work, um, the baptism that Janelle is going to go through is not a baptism that saves her. It is an expression of the salvation that she experiences. And Paul's mad because I'm starting to preach the things that he's going to say later on before he baptizes Janelle. But we are grateful for the finished work of Jesus upon that cross and for the fact that we don't have to add anything to it because our God has done it all himself and only could he do that great work. So we rejoice in that. I want to begin this morning by reflecting on uh, the track record of those 12 men whom Jesus called to himself during his earthly mission. When he was incarnate and he walked in flesh with a full human nature as we walk, how did those 12 respond to the leadership of Jesus while they followed him? Turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 16 for a moment. Jesus had been ministering um, to a great multitude as we get into Matthew chapter 16. He was ministering by the shores of Galilee and this crowd that had gathered around to hear him preach and to see him perform mighty works, this crowd was hungry. Uh, they didn't have food. They had been following after Jesus for some time. And so Jesus had fed 4,000 men. And no doubt there was probably three times that many people there, including the women and the children. But, but, but 4,000 people were recorded as being uh, fed in that moment miraculously by just a few loaves and a couple of fish. And so shortly after that, the 12 disciples, along with Jesus the Messiah, got into a boat and they departed across the Sea of Galilee to the region called Magadan. And so in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 5, it says, When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you see the, the frustration in Christ's voice here as these men who just saw him feed the multitudes miraculously are, are, are squabbling back and forth thinking, oh, we should have brought bread today, as if Christ could not provide that for them. Verse 9, he says, Do you not yet perceive... Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? See, this was not the first time that Jesus had fed the multitudes. This is actually the second time that in a miraculous scale, Christ had provided food for the people that came to hear him preach. Verse 11, how is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So we see a, a slowness to comprehend the grandeur of Christ and the power that he held as their rabbi, as their Messiah. In Mark 10, verses 35 through 45, we spoke last week about how James and John, two of the twelve, uh, approached Jesus 
and asked if he might grant them the special honor of having the, the place of, of dignity of being at his right hand and his left hand when the consummation of the kingdom uh, came to full effect. They, they wanted to be placed above the other disciples. And it created great disunity and disruption among the, the men who were serving the Lord Jesus Christ at that time. So we see this selfishness in them, this desire to, to climb the ranks and to be better than those around them, their peers. Matthew 17, 14 through 21, the 12 tried to cast a demon out of a boy and, and they could not do it. This, this demon persisted in him. Jesus says in verse 17 of, of Matthew 17, he says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. He asks them to bring the boy to him. And in, in the moments following, he casts that demon out of the young boy and frees him from that, saves him from that oppression. When Jesus expresses his frustration here is, is it only at the crowds that constantly gathered? Or was it also to his disciples, his own followers there? Jesus casts out that demon. He sends the boy away. And then later the 12 come to him and privately ask Jesus why they could not do what he did in that moment. And he tells them why. He says, because their faith was too little. Mark 9 expands on this, that, that they had not been praying and fasting as they should. This one could only come out by prayer and fasting. So Jesus is not only frustrated at the crowds, but he's also frustrated at the 12, because despite their exposure to him, their special access to his divinity and his power and his testimony and his teaching, they still lacked faith and discipline. And then near the end of his earthly mission, now you no doubt recall that Jesus asks his 11 remaining disciples to pray for him. Judas had departed. He had acknowledged that Judas was going to betray him and Judas leaves. And so having already revealed to the 12 that he was shortly going to give his life as a sacrifice on the cross and be executed, though he was guilt-free, though he had never committed sin against God, that he was going to be shamefully killed like a sinner. They knew that. And so they go into this this garden area late at night, and Jesus asks them to pray with him, to, to kneel in prayer. And he specifically calls James and John and Peter to pray right by his side. And, and although the circumstances were urgent and serious, and they must have known that Christ's execution would be happening shortly, he turns to them, and what has happened within just a few moments, these disciples have fallen asleep. They can't even stay awake. They can't even pray through the night with him. And he wakes them up several times trying to get them to engage in this important prayer to, to intercede for him, and yet they fall short. This is only a small sampling of the ways that the disciples of Jesus consistently tested the patience and the resolve of their master. Christ deserved better followers than that. No one in history of mankind was more worthy of careful devotion and attention. No one was more worthy of as much honor and obedience than Christ was. Jesus deserved to have disciples who were committed and diligent and trustworthy. But in a strange way, I am actually grateful that the 12 ended up being a lot more like us. We get to see them in real life examples of how much of a struggle it is to follow after Christ, to honor him with our lives. We could look back at their failures and, and think, I would have done differently, but that'd be a lie, friends. We struggle in our devotion to Christ as well. We, we have a hard time being consistently faithful and devoted to our God. He is infinitely more faithful to us 
than we are to him. These men scratched their head in confusion at the things that Jesus taught, just like we sometimes do. Fatigue was greater than their faithfulness, like it often is with us. They were sometimes petty and proud and lazy. But their failure isn't really what I want you to see here. Aren't you so grateful that Christ did not wash his hands of these weak men, despite their failures? That he didn't throw his hands up and say, you're out, I'm getting a new 12, right? There's plenty of people who would love to follow after me, and I, I don't need these disciples who don't get my teaching and who struggle to be faithful and, and consistently wonder and fear when they should be trusting and believing my promises. He did not push them away. In fact, Jesus did not just put up with the disciples, but he continued to show godly love and consideration towards these men that he had called to himself. And every one of them, with the exception, of course, of Judas Iscariot, who betrayed his Lord, everyone would go on to play pivotal roles in the spread of the gospel and the establishment of the church. We benefit from their work even today. Despite their faults and weaknesses, though they tested his patience, his godly love for them endured, and it had a transformational impact on who they were as men. It changed them in radical ways over time. And through chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, we've been learning what sets godly love apart from other kinds of love and how Christ is love's greatest expression. His life was the perfection of love incarnate. And today we're going to look at two aspects of godly love. If you like to turn now to 1 Corinthians 13, we'll be studying through this morning. We're going to look at two aspects of godly love that really should make us appreciate the person of Jesus Christ tremendously more than we do. So we're in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. We're going to read verses 4 through 7 as we have for the last several Sundays. We're, we're taking each little bit, each little detail that Paul re, uh, reviews to us here, reveals to us, and we're looking at it in depth. And so we're going to read through verses 4 through 7, and then we'll engage deeply in two of these facets or attributes of godly love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time that we might gather at your feet and let you teach us through your great word. Uh, my only hope is to be a conduit through which you share the truth that these people, myself included, need to hear. So I pray, God, that you would, you would do a mighty work in the preaching, that your Holy Spirit would be opening our eyes and opening our ears to the things we need to see and hear, God. And I pray that, Father, we would be moved to bring these things into life, that they would be the fruit of our salvation as we hear your word and we turn to obey it, Lord God. We thank you for finishing the work and for making it possible for us to really benefit from what you'll show us today in these scriptures. So help us to be a people who love like Christ loves. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we left off with Paul's declaration that godly love does not insist upon its own way. It is not a selfish attribute. 
The two terms that we're going to zero in on today will expand upon that concept that God, godly love does not insist on its own way. And so let's take just a moment to reflect upon the essentially selfless nature of godly love. Because godly love consistently desires what is best for someone else, and because godly love is not just a feeling, but a priority that leads to action, that benefits someone else, that leads to active support to the, the object and focus of that love, then if we are, if, if the Corinthian Christians, rather, wanted to pursue the more excellent way of love, then they were going to have to learn to put their own needs on the back burner and prioritize the needs of their brothers and sisters who had by faith become part of their spiritual family. Godly love does not seek its own at the expense of others, but is quite willing, in fact, to forgo its own good in order that someone else might get what they need. This could raise concerns for some. I know some people who hear that, that radical expression of love, they might think, if we are not insisting on our own way, does that make Christians just a bunch of weak pushovers? Does that make us the welcome mat upon which the rest of the world just gets to wipe their feet? Are we simply capitulating to what anyone else around us wants us to do or say or think? Do we just conform and mold ourselves to the world, just letting them always have their way? Is, is it loving to just conform to society and let everyone else do what they think is best in their own eyes, even at our own expense? And I assure you that the answer to that question is a resounding no, we do not. As followers of Jesus Christ, we do not insist on our own way. We insist on God's way. And we don't just insist on that from others. We look right in the mirror and we insist on that for ourselves as well. And so part of what we're doing this morning as we gaze into the word is we're seeing what is lacking, not just in the Corinthians, that we're struggling as a church and had great problems with, with disunity, but we're looking in this word and we're seeing in it a reflection of our own lack of love. We're seeing how we need to grow as the followers of Christ and how we can only hope to do that if Christ is ever before our eyes. If we're looking at his love and desiring his love and praying that the Lord God, through the Spirit, through the work that Christ has finished for us, would make us a more lovely people. The Christian life is a peculiar mixture of considerate flexibility and unyielding firmness. Think about that paradox. The disciple of Jesus strives to possess <clears throat> a pliable heart, one that is willing and, and happy to yield its own way for the sake of another, but is at the same time as firmly rigid as can possibly be imagined in the areas that the Lord has revealed His will to us. Often Christians come across one another, uh, come across as one or another of these two things. They're either exceedingly flexible or they are exceedingly firm and rigid, but not both. We must strive as Christians to embrace both of these things. In their immaturity, the Corinthian Christians, they lacked discernment. And so they suffered from confusion because they were not able to understand when it was appropriate to be firm and unyielding, and then when it was appropriate to be compassionate and yielding to one another. And so think of the evidence that we have seen of this immaturity among them. They were determined to follow and honor only those preachers who led according to their own personal preferences. 
So they were very rigid about this. You know, if somebody didn't preach the way they liked or if the doctrine didn't totally line up with what they wanted to hear, then they would say, well, I'm not Peter's guy. I'm, I'm Apollos' guy. No, I follow, I follow Jesus alone. I don't listen to any of these other apostle guys. So there was great division about who considered their teacher to be the best teacher. They were very firm in these things. They did not have a flexible heart and realize that the Lord could preach through each of these men and that each of these men were not preaching different gospels, but very much so the same gospel. They were impatient and inconsiderate towards those who were younger in the faith, some who didn't have a vast well of knowledge to draw from, and so they needed special consideration. The freedoms that the Corinthians wanted to exercise, many of whom felt, you know, there's no such thing as a false god, so I can eat meat that might have been sold in the market after it was sacrificed to a false idol, because I know those idols aren't real. I know those, there's only one true God, so I'm going to enjoy this feast. I'm going to enjoy this food. And yet it was causing the younger brothers and sisters in Christ who were not yet mature, didn't have that complete knowledge, to stumble and to feel like, well, maybe it's okay for me to participate in these temple feasts that were pagan in nature and, and contained many sinful elements in them. So they weren't flexible to the needs of the less mature brothers and sisters around them. As we continue to read through chapter 14, remember we're in a three-chapter section that really talks about and focuses on the spiritual gifts and how the people in Corinth were to use their spiritual gifts in such a way that they were a blessing to the people around them, to the church, and to the work of God. So as we continue to read, we're going to see that there were some who were dismissive of some of the gifts. They didn't really think very much of them. Uh, they were insistent that the higher gifts were the more spectacular gifts, and they wanted to see those expressed and they were also so rigid in expressing their gifts that they were willing to disrupt worship services to speak out in tongues without interpreters. They were willing to just spout off and prophesy in the middle of someone else's teaching. And so they were not being very careful in the way they cared for their brothers and sisters. They were rigid in the wrong ways. But then they were also very flexible in the wrong ways. And so we read about how they tolerated sin among themselves. They tolerated those who were exercising their supposed freedoms to violate God's commands in the marriage bed. Those who were not loving their spouses according to the command of Scripture or those who were entering into unlawful unions and flaunting it. Remember we read about a man who had married his father's wife and was bringing her right into church like it was no big deal, like it was nothing wrong with it at all. And so they were being flexible about that. I'll just let that guy do his thing. But they were rigid about the wrong things. And so what does that produce in a church? It produces strife. It produces tension and fighting. Godly love does not insist on its own way. And to further expand upon what that means, Paul teaches them that godly love is not irritable. Godly love is not irritable. To get a feel for how this particular word is used in other parts of Scripture, we can turn our attention briefly to Acts chapter 17. This word finds its way into that book written by Luke, who was a companion of Paul on many of his mission journeys. And in chapter 17, he begins to recall a time when they journeyed through the Roman city of Athens. Athens was a place of great learning and philosophy. And so in Acts 17, verses 16 through 17, now, Paul, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. Note that word provoked there. That is the same word that is translated in 1 Corinthians 13 as irritable. Here it is called provoked. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day 
with those who happened to be there. So we read here that Paul was provoked. There was something that was unsettled in him as a result of seeing so many people think they know the truth, when in reality the truth was far from their minds. They had no idea how much they needed salvation in Christ alone and how all these other idolatrous gods would do nothing good for them, would not bring them any closer to the true and living God. He was irritated by this, and we see that it was holy that he was provoked like that. This word has two different kind of applications. It can be a holy kind of provocation, or it can be an unholy one, as we see in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul was not annoyed in the sense that his personal comfort was at stake there in Athens, but his heart was stirred up by the Spirit of God to try and to engage these people, these learned men, with reason and to speak with these wayward philosophers to show them the light of Christ whom they desperately needed to know. And when Paul says here that love is not irritable in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, that it is not provoked in a sense, we should not take the position that this, it's never okay to act passionately or even swiftly in a, as a reaction to something that you see in the environment around you. So he's not saying you should never be passionate about something. Paul was passionate in Acts 17, wasn't he? He saw this and he couldn't stay quiet. He had to do something about it. So he engaged with the people of Athens and began to reason with them. Sometimes the situation merits a swift response, a, an, a spirited response. It was merited in Acts 17. It was merited when Jesus turned over the tables in the courtyard of his father's house of prayer because it was so disgraceful how they had monetized the worship of God in the temple. But to love better, most of us, most of us need to improve our discernment and our self-control in this regard. There's not too many of us who uh, you know, are, are zealous for the Lord and that we're turning over tables, and that we're going out to preach the word boldly. Most of us are struggling on the other end of the spectrum where we allow our hearts to be irritated and we are provoked for things that really don't matter, for things that we should just allow to pass under the bridge. Some of the basic rhythms of life are given to us by God to reveal how weak we are in our ability to, one, uh, to love one another. Parenthood is no exception to that rule. When God grants you the gift of being able to raise a child up, he puts you into a position to learn just how sensitive you are to not getting your way. Uh, we're currently praying for Terry and Aubrey. We've got a, a little one on the way, a little brother for Johanna. We're excited for that. Peter and Katrina, who've been coming to our church, have their second baby uh, they're praying for and excited about. Ismail and Megan, who many of you remember, went to church here for some time. They've moved to a different location earlier this year. They're up in the foothills now. They just had a little boy named Henry. So reach out to them and tell them you're grateful for that bundle of joy. It is a joy to have a new child, but it is also extremely hard work. And it is an exercise of selfless love. A baby has no idea how to think of the needs of others above his or her own needs. And so if that baby wakes up in the middle of the night and they're hungry, they don't look over to the clock and say, 3 a.m., I know dad's got to get up and in a couple hours get ready for work, so I'll just, I'll just keep it to myself. You know, they don't think, mom's got all those kids to homeschool. She's got all this prep she's got to do, so I better let her get her, her six or seven hours of sleep because uh, it would be inconsiderate of me uh, to, to make noise right now. I'll just wait until daybreak, and, and then I'll call out for breakfast. Absolutely not. That's not how babies act, all right? Those little vipers and diapers act differently than that. That adorable little baby transforms into an alarming siren screaming at the top of its lungs 
insisting that no living being gets rest for another moment if I am not fed. And maybe even not then. Once the baby's fed, it might decide, hey, I want everyone to stay up. That's how children operate at that age. And then children from infancy up through young adulthood exhibit the natural self-centeredness of mankind. Whether that is leaving their messes all over the house like a tornado leaves a wake of destruction behind itself, or whether it's behaving as though their every perceived need is the most vital issue in the universe and must be dealt with immediately at any given moment. Dealing with that kind of self-centeredness is not easy. And learning to have a long fuse, one that identifies our irritation, sees us getting provoked, and then is willing to stop instead of reacting in anger or frustration, is willing to stop and then battle those natural tendencies to be annoyed or angry and instead uses that as an opportunity to guide and shape those children into a more godly character. That is what Christ is calling us to be as parents, not just to react to our children's reactions so that there's constantly a powder keg of excitement and anger in our homes, but it's calling us by the Spirit to love our children in a more mature way. We even have to do that in our congregation sometimes, right? As we invite our little ones to be in here with us, that we have to show patience for the kids around us and for our own kids. And that's, it's great to see our, our membership. I mean, if you don't have kids of your own, learning to be a good guide and a help in that. So thank you all for participating in this, this godly effort to show our kids grace and love. In some regards, the fact that love is not irritable goes hand in hand with the characteristics that led this list. What do we learn straight out of the gate? Love is patient, right? That word means long-suffering. That means that as we are suffering long and patient, knowing that we care about somebody enough to endure the flaws that they have and their mistakes and their immaturity, we will endure that as long as it takes so that we can help them to grow just as Christ endures us, just as he endured his disciples. That refusal to be irritated and provoked to anger is much in line with this positive call to be long-suffering and patient. But our natural response, friends, our natural response when we are threatened or insulted or attacked or offended or even when we're just annoyed, our natural response is to lash out at that other person, to scold them, to chastise them, and if necessary, to force them to treat us with more respect and consideration. But the Apostle Paul opens our eyes to the fact that love, true godly love, does not behave like that. Godly love is more than patience. It is being able to recognize when you are angered for no good reason. I should actually say better than that, for no godly reason. Because if we really took inventory of what causes us to flip our lid and get to the end of our fuse, so often... It has nothing to do with the law of God being violated. It has to do with our personal preferences being stepped on. It's not that someone is offending the Lord God by breaking his eternal command. Instead, it is the fact that somebody else is just doing something that we don't prefer. And it is driving us crazy because we really think we should have life the way we want it. This is at the heart of the discernment about whether it is appropriate to be soft and yielding or whether it is appropriate to be firm and to dig our heels in. Are we irritated and reacting defensively because another person has stepped on our perceived freedoms and comforts? 
Or are we being rigid and yielding because that person is violating the law of God and is offending Him? Don't we often want, church, what we do not deserve? The more we expose our hearts to the perfect nature and character of our God, particularly to Jesus, our Savior, who suffered in the place of sinners and who came in the flesh to live out obedience every moment of his life in ways that we couldn't even do it for an hour, in view of Christ's person and character, shouldn't we begin to realize that we don't deserve nearly what we often feel like we deserve? So sometimes our anger is really a result of our own flaws. It's not somebody else annoying us. It's us sinfully thinking that we deserve better than we do. When in reality, what we deserve as violators of the law of God, what do we deserve? We deserve punishment from God. We deserve the wrath of a God who will not be opposed, who cannot be dethroned. Even at times when it is not just the result of our selfishness, at times when someone has sinned against us, that does not necessarily give us the right to unleash our anger, especially if it is important for us that we love with a godly kind of love. For godly love is not only not irritable, but it is also not resentful. Godly love is not resentful. Now, the Greek word that is translated as resentful here literally means to keep an account of something. It is uh, almost like keeping a tabulation of something that has accrued. So Paul is declaring that godly love does not keep an account. It doesn't keep a record. An account of what? A record of what? An account of the wrong things that someone has done to me. An account of sin. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Well, what does that mean? If someone were to keep an account of another person's sin, that would suggest, that would suggest a kind of competition between them. A kind of scorekeeping in which two parties are using the failures of the other against their opponent. Can you see why that would be a detriment to the people at Corinth and to any church that represents our Savior? If everyone was looking around thinking, well, you know, I've got grade eight holiness in my life, but because of the failures of my brothers, I don't see anything but sixes and fives around here. Hopefully I can find some nines or tens to hang out with so I can up my game a little bit. Does that sound like Christianity? It should not. Don't answer that question because you've probably been in environments where it, it does feel like Christianity at times, where people just seem to be like trying to outdo each other, keeping score, and it seems like a failure is, is just lifted up high so that people can see how embarrassed that person is. When in reality, that's, that's not what godly love should look like for us. This kind of scorekeeping is detrimental to the unity of a church body. It would be a self-defeating, a self-defeating conflict and an example of the body working against itself if the body were competing against itself. Remember, the church is not just a group, right? We're called the body of Christ. And you're familiar with what an autoimmune disease is? An autoimmune disease is a disease in which the body's natural defenses against what is foreign and vile to it get so twisted up they begin to attack what is good in the body. They begin to attack itself. So the defenses of the body begin to turn against the body. And, and that's what happens when a church begins to love each other with a, a kind of worldly love that allows resentment to creep in and allows us to keep score against each other and hold resentment and grudges against brothers and sisters in the church. It's like autoimmune disease for the body of Christ. 
Keep in mind that the residual impression of godly love does not seek its own is still contextual to what we're learning today. So when Paul says here that love keeps no account of wrongs, he has in mind the kind of personal wrongs that are done to an individual, the kind of things that might annoy us or provoke us to anger. So Paul is not issuing a challenge to offenders here. Notice this. This is an interesting nuance. He's not saying to those who offend others, stop offending others. He's issuing a challenge to the one who is offended. It demands that we think about how we are going to react when someone offends us, when someone doesn't treat us with dignity and kindness, when someone even sins against us. How are we going to act? Will you immediately consider how personal justice might be restored to you? Is that your first concern? Oh, that guy, well, no, you don't treat me like that. Uh, you got to pay for that sin. We're, we're going to make this right again. Do you immediately think of Leviticus 24.20? Quoted by Jesus in Matthew 5.38 says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What is that? That is equality under the law. And it's a good and faithful statement. It was an important pillar of the law, of the theocracy of Israel, ruled by God. That when somebody does something wrong, you don't punish them far beyond what they did wrong, but you also don't just slap them on the wrist. You punish them up to what they did wrong. There should be a just cr uh, punishment for the crime. And, and some of us really love that idea. Whatever wrong was done for me, I demand repayment in full. And make no mistake, God is a God of justice. He does not let sin go unpunished. But what metaphor has Paul just recently used to describe the people who make up the church? He's called us the body the body of Christ. And we are all members of that one organism with Christ as our head, right? And if that is true, then if I demand an eye in retribution for the sin you committed against me, I'm doing damage to myself. Your eye is my eye too. I got to think about how this affects you and how it affects me. So if I love my fellow believer, I am to want what is best for them. And has not God in his perfect mercy judged that what is best for his people is redemption? Redemption through the forgiveness that only he can provide. Church, every one of us is a, a, a sinner. We're all guilty. Worthy of the punishment fitting for one who blatantly commits treason against the God of the universe. We deserve that condemnation. We deserve to be exiled from the kingdom. We deserve even damnation. But by the love of God, those who trust in Jesus Christ have not gotten what they deserve. They have reaped what they did not sow. They have gotten something so much better. They have gotten grace. They have gotten a free gift from Jesus Christ, whereby Jesus, the Son of God, who has never offended God and therefore owes him no debt, has willingly taken onto his own shoulders the debt of sinners like you and like me. He willingly suffered the penalty of sin, and that penalty is death, friends. Jesus is not heading to the cross, by the way, thinking to himself, this is wrong. Everything about this is wrong. How can they be punishing me for something I didn't even do? I need justice for myself. That's not how Jesus is thinking. He's going to the cross, knowing that every sin he's about to take upon his shoulders was wrong. It was wrong for every human being that God had made in his image to rebel against God and to break his law. All of those sins were wrong and Jesus knew they needed to be punished. But he also knew how right it would be for him in his love and mercy to make a way for justice to be fulfilled, 
and yet the grace of God to be put on display in this people that he had chosen for himself. So we're going to continue reading in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus quoted that law in Leviticus that indeed calls for justice. Here's what you'd read. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 says, You have heard it, that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who could borrow from you. What Paul is calling for in 1 Corinthians 13, and what Christ is calling for in Matthew 5, 38-42, is a radical willingness to lay aside personal offense for the sake of the body of Christ and as a display of the power of amazing grace. Do not insist only on what is best for yourself, but think also about what is best for the person who offended you. I want you to stop for a minute and consider how countercultural that is right now. If you've been paying any attention to the media, and maybe you're blessed to have not paid much attention to the media lately, but if you've been listening in, and you've probably heard us preach about this from the, the pulpit, because we've spoken to you from time to time about the cultural danger of this thing called critical theory. And critical race theory is one expression of that critical theory. It is a theory, a social theory, that seeks to define cultures through the lens of those who have power and are advantaged, and those who do not have power and are therefore disadvantaged, marginalized, and oppressed. Now, is the Bible against oppression and unfairness? Of course it is. But critical theory sets these two groups as irreconcilable odds with each other. And we are seeing the resulting division that it inevitably causes in a country more and more each day as our nation remains divided and gets farther and farther apart from each other. There's another uh, component of that called intersectionality, which does more of the same and seeks to exalt as heroes those who have suffered the most kinds of oppression and opposition, what is strangely missing from that whole equation is what is right. It doesn't matter in the critical theory point of view whether somebody is right or wrong. It matters whether they have power or don't have power. And so it is, it is a theory that works just to change things, regardless of whether it's changing them for the better or for the worse. It is there to upset the apple cart. Now this kind of ideology has given rise to a new kind of ethic in our country where the most noble people in a society are not those who follow the law of God, who actually love like Paul is teaching us to love here, but rather the ones who are perceived to be oppressed by others. This is stressed to such a great degree that it is nearly unthinkable to imagine doing anything other than unquestionably supporting a person who claims to be offended and then demanding social justice on their behalf. But God's word shows us that there is no such thing as an innocent victim. Life is not as simple as that. There hasn't been an innocent victim walking this earth since Christ bore our sins on his shoulders up the, the path to Calvary. What I mean by that is just because someone sinned against me, that doesn't mean that I could ignore the fact that I too am a sinner. And because of that, I need correction just as the one who sinned against me needs correction. I am not absolved because I am a victim. I am also a victimizer. 
We are all in need of the love and grace of Jesus Christ. God's word shows us that we need this salvation. But church, we're in danger of forgetting the right ways to suffer. Rather than bear up under the oppressions of the world and the persecution that will inevitably come against God's people, whether, rather than practice patience and grace and, and ultimately grant forgiveness if the offender responds with repentance, we are instead being force-fed a philosophical diet of power struggles and hegemony. We're being encouraged by the lost culture around us to seek out ways, to literally seek out ways to be offended and then to capitalize on every mistake that our fellow citizens make towards us. Can you see how that's a recipe for hatred? This is such a contrast to what the Bible teaches us. Godly love knows how to forgive and godly love recognizes that true edifying relationships cannot exist without grace and patience and self-control. I pray deeply that as we think of the word and as it is preached to you each Sunday morning and anytime you're hearing preaching of, of the scripture, I pray that you're asking God to grant you understanding in that and that as part of that request for understanding, you are actively asking questions of the things that are being preached to you, that you're looking to the word for answers for those questions, that you're being a good Berean, uh, one who wants to know the truth, not to just be told the truth, but to see how it is rooted in God's word. And so one question you might ask as we learn that love keeps no record of wrongs, a question that deserves an answer is, how is this not just a license to sin whenever you want to sin? If Christians are just going to forgive you for everything, if they're just going to turn the other cheek and just be kind and never demand justice, then how is this not a license to sin? And I want to remind you, friends, that I don't insist on my own way, but I do insist on God's way. Because if I love the people around me, I want God's way for them. It is the best way for them. So offenses that are not a violation of God's command should by and large be laid to the side. Love can cover those things. But there are occasions if a person is consistently breaking the law of God and causing harm to the body of Christ through sin, then the most loving thing to do is to not turn away and pretend that the offense is not happening. The loving thing to do is to address that sin. It is not just an issue of personal offense. It is an issue of someone in the body of Christ offending God by breaking God's law and hurting God's bride by singing against, sinning against God's bride, his brother or sister. So look again at 1 Corinthians 13. In the very next verse that we're going to study next week, I'm not going to get into this too deeply, but in the very next verse, look at what Paul writes. It says that godly love does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices at the truth. See, the, the wonderful, spirit-filled mind of Paul recognizes here that you're going to ask that question. Isn't this just a license to sin? And he says immediately, no. The loving heart does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices at the truth. So godly love is not ignorant to sin. It doesn't just pretend like everything is okay and allow itself to be run over with the violations of God's word. I want to sh share an important example with you there is a weighty controversy that is brewing in the Southern Baptist Convention of which we are connected right now. And actually there are many, but um, this one is particularly sensitive. Due to the mishandling of this principle that love suffers long and that love keeps no record of wrongs, there are several instances of sin that have happened in the SBC churches over the last few decades 
where specific women were being physically abused by their husband or by a pastor. But when the issue was brought to the leadership in those churches, rather than address the sin for what it was, certain pastors, and this didn't happen across the board, it wasn't like a policy, but because of the weakness of men and the fact that men who fill pulpits are sinners too, certain pastors made a huge mistake and simply told the wife to forgive their husband and then sent them right back into an abusive environment without dealing with the husband's sin. The sin of the husband was never addressed, and so the hurt of that sister in Christ was dismissed as though the disruption in the family was their fault for complaining instead of the fault of their abuser for not loving their wife as Christ loves the church. And this is a very sensitive and serious matter, one that needs to be dealt with sincerely and thoroughly. When someone says that they are being abused, the first thing that needs to be secured is their safety. Do they need to be removed from that situation? Does an immediate intervention need to take place to avoid further harm to them or to other members of the family? The second thing that needs to be done is a swift and responsible assessment of the problem. A pastor must shepherd according to the truth, right? And so both parties need to be spoken with and all the facts must be ascertained to the best of the leadership's ability. If there was miscommunication or misunderstanding, or if it would seem as though false claims were being made, because that can happen too. That needs to come to the surface and clarity needs to be sought. We do not just assume that someone is guilty of an accusation without looking into the facts of things. Godly love cannot exist apart from truth, friends. We need to understand that abuse is a violation of God's law, but it is also a violation of the laws of the land that we live in. If there is justifiable cause to believe that abuse has occurred, a report needs to be made. And those whom God has ordained to wield the sword in our society, in other words, the police, the proper authorities, have got to be introduced to the situation. They've got to play their part with a thorough investigation and then applying the just penalty to laws that were broken. You might say, well, where does forgiveness fit into all of this? Forgiveness and reconciliation are still very much so, both the goal of any conflict like this. But forgiveness does not make a mockery of justice. We do not rejoice in wrongdoing, church. We rejoice in the truth. And if someone has broken the law and violated another Christian's health and freedom, then we need to deal with that on both a church family level and, if necessary, on a legal level. In these churches where a crime was committed and justice was not pursued, then the injured sisters were left to think that the grace of God applied only to their husbands and not to themselves. This was wrong and needs to be addressed in each of those situations. And we're prayerfully hoping that these congregations would address those things. Now, sadly, because so many churches in the SBC are not faithful to the commands of Scripture and don't practice church discipline, which is where there are policies in place and procedures by which we take the Word of God and use it as a framework, to pursue the truth and pursue repentance. Unfortunately, a lot of those church right now don't know what to do with themselves. They don't know how to properly handle it. And the SBC is not a denomination, so we don't have bishops somewhere who have the authority to come in and take those men out of the pulpits. They're trying to give counsel. They're trying to be direction, but it's, it's quite a mess. So be in prayer for the SBC that the Lord would untangle all of this irresponsible lack of love and that truth would shine through along with compassion and forgiveness. When dangerous 
ongoing sin is being committed, the church has got to deal with it. It is not loving to act as though offense has not occurred. But this is not the general nature of the offenses that were causing division in the church in Corinth. There the situation was not so much about the people of God breaking the law against each other. It was about brothers and sisters offending one another. Lives were not at stake, but unity was. And unity is still very important to God. When someone offends you, what do you do with the hurt that it causes you, friend? And this is a time for us to spend some self-reflection. When you are sinned against, do you initiate in your mind and heart, it's probably not like you have some policy where you go and you consult the handbook of how to respond to offense, right? But when somebody hurts your feelings, does your mind think, well, there's got to be a relational penalty here. I'm going I'm to hold this against that person. I might still go to church in the same church with them, but they're not coming over for dinner anymore. When Christmas cards go out next month, they ain't getting one from me, right? I'm not going to bring a meal to them if they get sick. Do you, do you apply some kind of ubiquitous relational penalty upon that person who has offended you, taking justice into your own hands? Or do you build some kind of a guilt reserve into which you put information about that person's offense and failure, where you start to store up for them a case, a file, whereas if, they, if, if things ever get really serious, you can go back and say, well, you did this against me, and you did that against me, and you offended me in this way, so you can't expect me to be graceful to you. You can't expect me to be a, a loving brother or sister in Christ to you. Is that how you respond when somebody hurts your heart? This is not the way that a godly love behaves, friends. Do you quickly capitalize on that offense towards you and then use it as some kind of an excuse to commit sin against your offender? Do you feel justified in hurting someone else because they threw the first punch? Because they hurt you first and were inconsiderate? So now all bets are off the table. We used to be behaving in the laws of God, but you broke that, so now all bets are off. That's how you respond to someone who offends you. Look to what the, the Word of God says as regards to our direction in responding to the offense of a fellow brother or sister. First thing we are to do, 1 Peter 4, 8 says, is see if love can cover it. Right? This, this should be a family based upon love, united in the love of Christ. And there are times when a fellow Christian offends you or does something to slight you or isn't considerate to you, and it stings and it really hurts you. But you can think about that offense in light of the great love that you've been given from Jesus Christ, a love that you could not afford if you were to purchase it, a love that goes far beyond what you deserve. And you could say, you know what? Christ is enough for me. I don't, I don't need retribution. I don't need justice. I don't even need to address this situation. I love the Lord and I'm satisfied with Him. I am not going to let this make me angry or bitter in any way. I'm not going to demand repayment. I'm going to let that offense completely go. Can love cover it? And there are times, friends, when love can cover it. Praise God. If you've got the Holy Spirit in you, you've got a resource that you didn't have before. And you'll be amazed, not only that Christ can forgive you from what you've done, but you'll be amazed that that kind of love towards you has given you a new perspective where you can forgive others for what they have done to you. So see if love can cover it. If it is more serious, or if it is a habitual sin, one that keeps occurring regularly and needs to be put to stop, then pursue the godly course of restoration that God gives to us in His Scripture. And there's wonderful blessings in 
the book of Matthew chapter 18, if you read through 15 through 17, it gives you a framework of how you address a brother and sister discreetly, one-on-one, with the hope of restoring them, with the hope of that being dealt with in an individual way, without involving a lot of other parties at first. You hope that that one-to-one brotherhood or sisterhood can be enough to show that individual, hey, look, the way you're treating me hurts me. And if that person loves that, you know, the person they've hurt, then what's the spirit going to do in their heart? It's going to make them say, you know, you're right. I, I won't treat you like that anymore. Please forgive me. I'm going to confess that to you and to God. Let's, let's make this right. And then it's over. It's, it's restored. There's no need for, for hurt. But if it, if it doesn't end there, then the scripture gives us provisions where we go back with another brother or sister, some accountability, and we broaden the scope of those who are involved. And we urge them again, listen, by scripture, let me just show you how what you're doing to me is not according to the word of God. Now, we don't do that if someone's just offending our sensibilities, right? I don't do that with my kids. I don't take them to Pastor Paul and say, look, these kids, they're not picking up their clothes ever. And it is driving me crazy. Can you please correct these kids? They refuse to pick up their clothes. I don't do that to them because that's, that's a preference. That doesn't really matter in the long scheme of things. But when there's sin involved and it's habitual, you take it to the next level if you need to. And then it, it might need to go to the church. If a, a long period of time and patience is given for that person to repent of their sin and the spirit to work, and you take that to the church and you allow the church to add accountability and prayer to that situation and to point out so that person can't just hide their sin and, and plant it in the church of Christ and just expect it to, to fester without any, any uh, opposition. And then, of course, if somebody is through their actions proving to you that they have no intention of following Jesus Christ as their Lord, you know, they're, they're not interested really in doing what the Lord has told them to do in the scripture, then that reveals a lack of love for Christ in them. It reveals that the profession of faith that they made before is very likely a hollow profession. And you can't allow that person to continue to be a member of the church if they aren't even a believer in Christ Jesus and willing to follow after him. So this is a godly procedure by which we can follow the word of God and seek restoration when sin happens. If there is repentance, what do we do, church? We rejoice and we forgive We gladly forgive because we have been forgiven so much. We rejoice in the promise of Psalm 103.12 that was read earlier, where as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed our transgression from us. I love that picture because measure that for me. How far is the east from the west? It just keeps getting farther and farther and farther, right? There's no way, there's no limit to it. When we are forgiven, it is done. Christ has finished it, okay? So we don't continue to make somebody suffer over and over again. We don't practice double jeopardy and constantly bring up the failings they, they, they made the mistake of doing in the past. If they have repented and confessed and they're walking in the truth, it is finished. It is in the hands of God. And in forgiveness, we do not treat brothers or sisters in Christ as if Christ did not already suffer in their place. We don't, we don't treat that sin as if it is no longer under the scope of justice that God just brushed it under the rug and he got away with it. We recognize that that sin was punished through the blood of Jesus, that Jesus suffered for it. The price was paid in full and it is done. So friends, we've got to, as a church, resist the urge to weaponize someone else's guilt against them. Godly love is not crouching in anticipation of the failures of others, just ready to capitalize with a backlash of revenge. That does not characterize Christian love. That is an environment of judgment and condemnation. The church is a family of grace and forgiveness. So keep no record of wrongs. That means that we're not storing up offense equity. You know, we're not storing up a long list, a, a dossier of failures that we might use as a personal justification 
to treat others lovelessly down the line. Instead, it is recognizing the grace that God has given to us and committing ourselves to having the same mercy and patience with our brothers and sisters who stumble and fall and who offend us in that process. So whose example can we follow in this church? Praise be to God, we have a great one. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19. The Apostle Paul writes later to the same church. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The oldest passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Do you see that? He reconciled us to himself, and he said, now you guys, be reconcilers. Care about reconciliation. Love reconciliation. Walk in, in faith in me and in such a way that you behave with each other so that people can see that reconciliation matters to you as well. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation to preach the gospel so that those who are lost might hear the truth, repent of their sin, and come near to God again. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Christ is not counting our trespass against us. You feel physical relief when you hear that. Do you, do you understand the glorious peace that we can experience knowing that everything that I have done against God, he's just not keeping it for a, a good day so he can rain down judgment on me when it's just become too much, that it is finished. It's done and gone and that he does not count my transgressions against me. How can I then hold a grudge against my brother and sister? How can I treat another believer as if they're not worthy of the forgiveness that God gave to me when I was not worthy? Where would we be if the Lord God counted our transgressions against us, church? Where would we be if he kept a record of our wrongs? Instead, he keeps a different kind of record, doesn't he? He keeps a record of names of those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, those who have confessed their sin and called upon the name of Jesus Christ. They have the blessed promise that they will one day dwell with him forever. So it's only because of the reconciling work of Christ that you can even hope to follow in kind and act lovingly like Jesus does. Apart from the grace of Jesus, we cannot love with a godly love. The capacity to do so is given to us as a gift exclusively by the victory of regeneration that was won on our behalf by the Son of God. Let's bow in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for your amazing grace and we are glad to be able to rejoice in the power of your victory. We ask, Lord God, that as we finish our worship service with this beautiful picture of grace that Paul is about to describe to us, Lord, that we would give you all the glory for the victory that's been won, that we would recognize um, Janelle as confessing to the world right now that her, her faith is in you and that she belongs to your church. We praise you for all these things. And we ask that, uh, that the sacraments would ever be a source of joy for us, that we would think about our baptism and the time when we publicly professed our faith in you and that we would not forget that we are yours, we are in your hands. Help us to recognize no one could ever strip us away from that. Help us persevere to the end and to persevere with godly love. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.